study. Christology, Christos, Creo, is the study of Christ. That's what we're going to be doing all the way up to the birth of our Savior, going through what might be called fundamentals in theology, but I, I think this will help you a lot if you have never um, had um, even the fundamentals of, of uh, systematic theology uh, exposed to you. Most of our men and women who are older here have, but this is going to be a good time for you to nail it down. So you're, you're going to want to take notes. There will be things that I will be saying that will be important for you to capture in your understanding and be able to reiterate yourself <clears throat> around uh, who Jesus is. Uh, most Christians don't have the ability to actually defend the claims of Christ because they don't drill down consistently enough into the Bible's explicit teachings around it. So this is actually going to be a real benefit for, for you. Um, there are a lot of Christians who are uh, believers, no doubt, but they, they find themselves studying peripheral things and, and, and situations and concepts of the Bible that really don't cohere what we call essential Christian doctrine. And so they are more susceptible to being challenged by heresies and heretics and, and false doctrine and false teachings. Most Christians could not, if they were demanded, be able to defend the doctrine of Christ's deity or the doctrine of his humanity and how those two coexist. Obviously, on the 24th, we will be celebrating not the day of Christ's birth, but the fact of his birth. And that celebration is a celebration of the mystery of the union between God and man. We call that the hypostases. That we will be making our way up to over the next five studies. Tonight, Friday, we'll get deep into it. Next Tuesday, we'll go even further. Next Friday, we'll go even further. The following week, we will have uh, a bit more around uh, the, the person of Christ, uh, and it will prepare us for his birth so that his birth that we enjoy is not some, as I said, uh, kind of um, uh, holiday seasonal uh, gift card scenario where we are having the warm fuzzies about God's love towards us, but really understanding the event that transpired when Christ came into the world. That's what we want to do. So tonight we're going to be dealing with four major uh, propositions in our outline, and uh, I'm going to drill down really more fully on the first one. I'll tell you why, and then uh, on Friday we will drill down into the latter three. Let me open in a word of prayer, because as you know, this hour goes by quickly. And again, I want to encourage you to take notes, get the CD or listen to it. Listen to it long enough for you to be able to answer the question that our master gave to the disciples on his way to Calvary when he says, so who do you say that the son of God is? And who do men say that the son of God is? He was really raising the question, do you know me? And we as Christians should be able to do that too. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for a space and a place and, and quiet and peace and an opportunity to be disciples. So we're asking that you would disciple us by your spirit and may the content of your discipling be the revelation of your son more fully known by us so that we can, we can love him and love you and love your spirit 
for his sake in a way in which we too can be the sons and daughters of God we claim to be. We're coming to you now on the grounds of your son's blood again to wash us, purge us, sanctify us and to cleanse us continually and we are coming to you on the grounds of his righteousness which is our standing, our union, our position, irrevocable, unchangeable, immutable Christ in us, we in Christ which is the hope of glory for us and you and us father and we in you which is the ground of our existence help um, help us to hear you now hear your word more fully at this time may these things not be strange to us and we're asking your mercy on our families our loved ones across the ton of struggles that we have we thank you that this is also a time of a sweet hour of prayer where we can call upon you we know you hear us for Christ's sake and we're asking that you do that now here we pray in Jesus name amen so this is how it's going to go the study right now is called the coming of Messiah the coming of Messiah the operative verb I want you to first take into consideration is coming we will talk about that more fully. The coming of Messiah. Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew term for the anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew term for the anointed one. When you think about the anointed one, you're thinking about somebody that's set apart. And then that individual is consecrated and sanctified in a profoundly significant way to actually occupy an office or a position that they have to engage in. So an anointed one, that's what the term literally means, masa in the Hebrew means to anoint. The anointed one is the one that we set our eyes on because all of our hopes are invested in this anointed one. So when we call him Messiah in the Old Testament, we call him Mashiach in the Hebrew, Mashiach in the Hebrew, we are saying he is the anointing. He is God's choice for fixing the problems in the world. This is extremely important for you to kind of understand. It's an object outside of ourselves. That object is a person filled with qualities, characteristics, attributes, predications, and things of that nature that we're getting ready to talk about now. I say that because you hear the term Messiah a lot. It's a beautiful word. It rolls off the lips well. It really does. And God is honored whenever we go Messiah. He is the Messiah. In, and, and I'm now speaking in Hebrew. If we were uh, Hebrew transliteration, but if we were speaking in Greek, it would be Christos, Christos, Jesus Christos or Jesus. The Greek is a, a root for the derivative of the Latin, Jesus, Jesus Christos. Christos is the term for Messiah. So we call him the Christ in English. It is the Greek word Christos and Christos has as its root our cognate the word Creo and Creo, C-H-R-I-O uh, or C-R-I-O, depending on how that word is used, it means to anoint. It's the thing that you pour oil on. So I just want you to capture the idea of the anointed one is the one upon whom the oil is poured. Okay, I want you to have that visual and I want you to be free to call him the Christ, free to call him Christos, free to call him Messiah, uh, Messiah, and he is the one that is what? Coming. He's the one that's coming. So now what we're talking about is a featuring event, an event that takes place by which people who have heard about this individual is coming. Okay, that's the idea I want you to think through now. 
I want you to think about the coming of Messiah. And so what I am seeking to do with you at this present time is to facilitate that hopefully by the spirit in your own mind and heart that Jesus will come to you in our study. That's what I want you to be able to do. And what I want you to know is that's the purpose and scope and design of your Bible. Your Bible is actually to teach you about his coming. Psalm 40, verse 7, if you will, you're going to have to keep up with me. This is our um, sort of anchoring verse. This will be the verse that will lead us all the way up to uh, uh, December 24th, the day we celebrate him. And I want you to hear the latter part of the verse because this will be Sunday's message. Then said I, lo, I come. Do you guys see that? Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of who? Me. So the first thing I want you to understand is that in this verse, the, the voice in this text, in this verse, is the voice of Christ. We're going to affirm that quickly in a little bit. The voice in this text is the voice of Christ. We do know that, do we not? We know that in many ways, the Hebrew writer explicitly takes this text in Hebrews chapter nine and says, when he came into the world, as it is written, lo, I come. And the Hebrew writer is talking about Jesus. If you look carefully at the first clause, at that first line, here's what you need to immediately understand, that the person that is talking is talking about himself. That's what I want you to capture. Remember, good theology means observation at a critical level. The person that's talking is talking about himself. He's not talking about somebody else. Notice, then said I, first person singular, lo, I'll be talking about that. Look, behold, stop, pay attention, I come. So the person that's coming is the person that's telling you that he's coming. That's important, right? Now he tells you the scope of his coming. He says, lo, I come in the what? Volume of the book. Not to do a whole lot of exegesis now, but what that means is in the totality of the scroll. The book is the scroll. Your Bible is a scroll. When we use the word book, it's kind of a contemporary way of saying the scroll. Does that make some sense? Now, let me talk about that just a bit. The scroll is a document that's rolled up, and while it's rolled up, it is unrevealed. It's only revealed as it's unloosened. Then come I in the unloosening of the scroll, okay? So you can see the two handles on each end while it's rolling open. Do you see that? Do you see that? That's how the Hebrews would have experienced worship uh, in the ancient days in the synagogue or in the temple, the minister would have taken the scroll and did what? Opened it. And so you and I are getting a visual of how Jesus tells us that he's coming. He's coming in the scroll of the Bible. He's coming in the opening of the scriptures. He's coming in the revelation of that document that tells us about God. So the scroll is really referring to every revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. It's about him. Does that make some sense? So if you are again, we're sitting in a synagogue, you would get to see visually the minister taking whatever scroll, the book of Isaiah, that's Luke 4, concerning Christ's first message in his own home, and he would be opening the scroll. What this text is saying is, as the scroll is opened up, Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-2, Genesis 1-26, Genesis 1-29. 
Genesis 2.1. As that scroll is opening, the subject of that revelation is him. Did that come home? It's extremely important for you to know then, you automatically know that we are dealing with scripture in this sense. He is coming to us in the what? Scriptures. Because the scriptures are the testimony of God. And that's what you and I want to uh, what, uh, want us to be, be dealing with is the idea of him coming in your Bible, which is what we're about to do now. And he's coming as a testimony. It's a record of the coming of Christ. So look again with me at, um, at, um, Micah chapter five, verse one under our first point. How is he coming? What is he doing? He's talking to us about who he is. And Micah is going to be a good text to launch from because we're going to end up back here on uh, the 24th of Sunday. Micah chapter 5 verse 1 says, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Now look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall he what? Shall he come forth? I'm getting ready to talk about that. Shall he come forth unto me? That is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old, even from everlasting. There's a lot there. But what this is describing is your first point in your outline. Pull up the first point just so we can see it. And I want to talk about what we're doing as we are declaring the coming of Christ. We have to declare that his, com his coming, what he reveals to us in his coming, is that he is before time. He is before time. I want to explain that so that you get it. Because... The he here is Christ and his 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 nature, his character, his person is what's in question. So if he's coming to us and yet what the author is saying, going back to the verse so that people can be comfortable with the verse, if you don't mind, if he's coming to we're at verse two, please. Verse two is the key. If he's coming to us, the question is, when he comes, is his coming the beginning of his life? Or is it a manifestation of his life? That becomes the question. When we talk about the coming of Christ, are we talking about him coming into being at a certain time? Or are we saying that when he comes, he is coming from somewhere into something and therefore manifesting himself? And the latter would be true, but I'm taking my time because I want to make sure all of us are able to clearly affirm this. Because you can say it, but you still got to be able to defend it. It's easy to say, but it has to be defended. And I can tell you now there are all kinds of institutions and communities seeking to divest Christ of the qualities of his person as well as the benefits of his work if they can prove to you that he is not who we as Christians affirm that he is. Here's the question that we're going to raise. If Jesus exists before time, that puts him in a category of a species different than creation. If he exists before time, that puts him in a category of species different than creation. 
See, this is a Bible class, so I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with you seriously now because I need you to think this through. What we are getting ready to deal with is the affirmation that Jesus of Nazareth, the, the son of the living God, has what is called an eternal sonship. He existed eternally before time as the son. And this is actually the way that the writer Micah is expressing it. Notice what he says, but thou Bethlehem, you guys see that? Now, for those of you who know how to write, that is a designation of an office given to Messiah, to Jesus as David's son. OK, so I want you to know that David's son, King David. King David was given a covenant promise by God that Messiah would come through his line. Messiah would come through his line and be born in Bethlehem. So when we are talking about this one who came into time from timelessness, we are saying that he was before time and he has entered into space and time as we know it. And he will land physically in a place called Bethlehem to begin to appear to us in his human form with his human purpose. Does that make some sense? That's very, very important for you to get. So here's the proposition. He was before time. He was before time. I'm going to come back here, but I want to go to Matthew chapter two, verse five and six. So you can have the New Testament correlation to this verse. We're going to be we're going to be finagling with this a little bit. I'm going to go to the other main points and then come back here. But I just want to start you off with the proposition that when we talk about Jesus, we cannot be talking about someone who is created. You cannot be talking about someone who is created if in his coming in the volume of the book, the book actually is telling us that he is before time. So see the 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 testimony or the instrumental means of his coming for us at the propositional level is the Bible. So the Bible is telling us he's coming and the Bible is telling us he's coming from eternity past which means he existed before time. And that's what Micah is underscoring. All I want to do is take you to, my, to Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, and notice what it says in verse 5 and 6. And they said unto him, this is the uh, Magi speaking to uh, Herod, who wanted to know where Jesus was born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the what? Now, who is the prophet that wrote? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So you see now how the New Testament is is having a conversation with the Old Testament, is it not? So the New Testament, Matthew, which is some 500 years after Micah, is referring back to Micah to tell Herod that Micah prophesied of the coming of Jesus 500 years beforehand. Notice what he says in verse 6. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a ruler that shall what? Rule my people Israel. So this here is a, a modified version of Micah 5.2. You can see that, right? So go back to Micah 5.2 so we can actually once again reiterate language that I want to confirm for you. And then we'll move on to our other points. My fundamental argument is that when we are talking about Messiah, when we're talking about Messiah, when we're talking about the anointed one, we are actually talking about a person, a being 
that cannot be understood as being created. He had to exist before creation, so he is a different kind of species than created things. Does that make some sense? Right, and we'll, we'll argue his deity shortly. Again, let's look at the latter part for a moment. He shall come forth unto me. Do you guys see that? Yet out of thee, Judah, shall he come forth unto who? Me. So now, I, you know, again, always identifying the pronouns is important. I'm just going to lift it up, lift this up now, and we'll come back later. So the verse is being stated by the prophet Micah, but God is speaking about the coming of Jesus. And if you listen carefully to the construction, he out of thee, Judah, shall he, Jesus, come forth unto me, God the Father. All right. So now that's easily said. I just want you guys to be able to understand that the person speaking is God. And I'm going to talk about how important that is in a moment. So there are two he's. The he is the one coming. He's coming to something. What is he coming to? He's coming to God the Father. So here we have a conversation with God about what he's going to do with his son and sending his son into the world. And he's telling you and me that his son is coming, not ultimately for us, but for him. Did that make some sense? Now, notice what it says again. Yet out of Judah shall he come forth unto who? And, and if God the Father is speaking, what he's saying is, watch him come out of time into time. He's going to come into Judah, and he's coming into Judah for me. He's not coming for you primarily. He's coming for God. Right, so understand that the role of Mashiach, the role of the anointed one, the role of Messiah as the son, you guys see that, right? The role of the eternal son when he comes is really in relationship to who? The father. Y'all got that? All right, so now this is going to be important for you to capture as we think this through. The son comes into the world because the father sends him. So when he says, lo, I come, that is what is called a subject expression and a verbal intentionality. Lo, I come. So the one acting is Jesus. He says, I'm coming. Y'all got that? I'm going to unpack that more on Sunday. But why is he coming? Because the father sent him. So all through the gospel of John, doesn't he say, as the father has sent me, I am coming in my father's name. Right. He whom the father has sent. So I am coming. Jesus is the subject. The verb is I'm coming, but I'm coming because of what the father did. What? That's right. So we we can anchor this with John chapter three, verse 16. Right. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right. That whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the Bible is clear that. The father sent the son into the world that the son might be saved. So the coming of Jesus is a consequence of the father sending him. So this here is an inter-Trinitarian relationship of the father and the son. The son is not coming of his own volition. He's not coming whimsically. He's not just coming. He's coming in relationship to the father's will and purpose. That makes some sense, right? Very, very important. So like even the whole idea of sonship, sonship is the highlighting of a relationship between a father and a son. 
So when Jesus comes, he's coming not ultimately to glorify himself, but to glorify who? Y'all got that, right? Y'all got that. So it's extremely important. So first, he's coming from eternity because he's what? Before time, right? And so as our second point says, and when he comes, he's coming by announcing himself. He's announcing himself. Didn't we just learn that in Psalm 40, verse 7? Lo, I come. So he exists before time. That makes him something other than creation. He is coming, as he said, and he's the one that's announcing his coming. It's important for you to know that. No one else is announcing his coming. He's announcing his coming. And it's important for you to get it. We might ask, okay, the person that's coming is announcing his own coming, but who he, who is he? Well, we know him as Messiah. The New Testament describes him as Jesus, and it also calls him the Christ. Well, how is he coming? He's coming because the Father is sending him. How do we know he's coming? He told us he was coming. I really want you to, to capture that. The coming of Christ is his announcing what? Himself. Very important. Now, under this, under that statement, this is a category in theology that we call self-disclosure. You write that down. I'm not going to stay on it long. I just want you to hear it. Like, really what we're doing today, I just want you to hear. Self-disclosure. Self-disclosure. Does that make some sense? What do we mean by self-disclosure? When someone reveals things about themselves to you so that you can know them. Self-disclosure is what God does in order for us to know him. If he didn't come, would we know him? If he didn't say he was coming, would we be uh, ready for him? No. If the father didn't send him, would he come? See, we're already laying down some really solid rules. So the coming of the son is because of a collaboration between the father and the son. So he's coming to us, but he's coming for his father. So when he comes to us, guess what? His conversation to us is going to be really about his father. And this is going to be one of the ways we know who God is, because God is bringing a self-disclosure of himself within the persons of the triune Godhead. The son is coming to announce who the father is. That makes sense, right? This is called self-disclosure. And we'll actually enjoy the fact that it's all three persons doing this. But let me give you a few Bible verses to nail that down. If we are talking about the self-disclosure of God, that God cannot be known if he doesn't, um, you know, reveal himself to us. Self-disclosure is the work of the father and the son, John chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to what it says. I'm going to give you two or three verses on this. Notice what John 1, 18 says. Here's what it says. No man has seen God at any time. Do you guys see that? All right. So in regards to our subject matter, here's what I want to say. It's true that none of us have seen him with the physical eye empirically. That's true. And that's true because of his ontological nature, We're going to talk more about that down the line. It's true that God is invisible, right? That's what Timothy says, right? He is the invisible God whom no man has seen nor can see. So that is true. But when John is saying no man has seen God, what John is saying is no human being has the 
capacity to comprehend the reality of God without God's self-disclosure. If God doesn't make himself known to us, we still don't see him. That makes sense, right? All right, so very good, very good. I want you to get that. And notice what the second line says. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he hath what? That's what is meant in, John, in, in Psalm 40, verse 7. Lo, I come in the volume of the book is written of me. What, what is he doing? He's declaring the father. He's making known who God is in his relationship with God as God's mediator to men that men might know the invisible God in the visible God. So I'm going to say that one more time so you can capture it. I'll, I'll work it through theologically down the line. But you guys already know that Yahweh one is invisible. You do know that, right? Jehovah one is Cardinal one is invisible. There are three persons to the Godhead. We, we know that, right? Cardinal one is invisible. Cardinal three is invisible. The Holy Ghost is invisible. Cardinal two is what? Visible because of what we're going to celebrate on December 24th, the incarnation. Now, all three of them are invisible until Cardinal 2 assumes the human nature. Y'all agree with that, right? So that's the beauty of the doctrine of the incarnation. But the doctrine of the incarnation, as we're going to study over the next several weeks, is a teleological process, a long, lengthy project, uh, project that starts in Genesis and makes its way to you and me. Okay? I just want you to capture that because... The purpose for which the invisible Yahweh is being revealed in the visible Yahweh is so that you and I can act like the visible Yahweh in revealing the invisible Yahweh. Did that come home? Did y'all catch, catch that? Right, and, and I want you to be able to get these terms because I want to drill down into it. The beauty of being a Christian is that means you are connected to the Christos. And the purpose and design of the Christos is to reveal the invisible God. So we share in that in really profound ways, okay? It's really important for you to know that. So when we're talking about self-disclosure, what we are saying is that God reveals himself in his persons, right? Person one is revealed by what? Person two. Is that true? And we can extend this, that person two is revealed by who? Person three. Is that true? Person three reveals person two. Person two reveals person one. That's John 16. That's what Jesus will teach at length. We'll see that here shortly. But there, there is such a rich insight that needs to be captured. Let me deal with the uh, first three subpoints under point number one. He was before time. The subpoint says what? He existed before what? Is that what you see? Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12. I'm just going to run through some verses. I'm not going to drill down into them. We need five hours. What I want to do is help you understand. You don't have to do gymnastics to be able to concretely affirm that Jesus is something different than creation. Specifically be because he existed before it. Did that make some sense? So if your Bible explicitly tells you he's before time, ah, that makes him a different species, okay? He's not limited by time in that sense. And if it makes him before time, he's in a classification with a species 
that exists before time. And the only species we know that exists before time is God. Every other species, even angels, exists within the parameters of time. Okay, so we cannot call him an angel because an angel does not exist before time because an angel is a created being. That makes some sense, right? So I'm, I'm glad you're, you're keeping up with me. Notice what it says in Habakkuk chapter 112. A beautiful concept that is exactly stated in uh, Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Notice what Habakkuk says. Art thou not from what? Everlasting. That's the last construction in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Where it says, of, of you, Judah, shall he come unto me, right? Who himself is from ancient times, even from everlasting. Now notice, go back to our text there, stay, stay there with me, here it is. Art thou not from uh, uh, everlasting, or what? Lord my God. So now Habakkuk is simply describing God in his eternality. He's affirming that God is an eternal being. Would you agree with that? This is very important. God is an eternal being. That means he has no beginning, and he has no ending. That puts him in a classification all by himself. The same Hebrew, Hebrew construct here, olam, is the final expression of a mimeh, olam. He is from everlasting, is the construction about Jesus in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The Lord my God is from everlasting. Jesus is from everlasting. Hence, Jesus is also the Lord my God. Isn't that what Thomas said? My Lord and my God. But right now, what you and I are doing is anchoring down the sufficiency of Scripture to explain to us, when did Jesus exist? Before time? In eternity? Did he ever not have an existence? No. Why? Because he is a unique species in relationship with only one kind of species called God. Y'all got that, right? Very good, very good. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my what? Holy one. And again, what I love about this, I, I don't have the time, but you guys know we've done this before as we study Christology. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of verses that render to Jesus these same kind of attributive qualities that are rendered to the Father. Is the Father called the Holy One? Of course he is. He's being called that now. Is Jesus called the Holy One? By demons even. That means demons knew who Jesus was. And demons would acknowledge Jesus' divinity by calling him the Holy One of God. Why have you come to torment us before our time, O Holy One of God, right? Which means they are not finagling about Jesus' pre-existence before time, which therefore they're not arguing about his deity. Why would Christians slide all over the ice on the deity of Christ when the Bible is explicit about that? Y'all keep it up with me? All right, I'm going to drill down just a little bit more and keep going. Notice what he says. We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them for judgment. And, O mighty God, you have established them for correction. This is Habakkuk really arguing with his God over why God's people are sinning and perishing when they were ordained to life. That's what the prophets do. That's a beautiful thing. Here's another verse under the pre-existence of Christ. He existed before time. Look at Psalm 90, verse 2. 
Psalm 90, verse 2. The same construction is here. I'll touch on this either today or later when I deal with the construction in Micah 5, 2. Matzah, yatzah, miget, dim, mimeh, olam is the expression that he's from of old, even from everlasting. I'll explain that, but it's stated here again. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are what? Same construction. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Only God can be from everlasting to everlasting. Would you agree with that? Very important to know then. So even though, look at verse 1 of Psalm 90. And I love quoting this verse when I'm doing uh, memorials. Psalm 1. Lord, there it is, Yahweh. It's in all ca uh, lower capitals, uh, Adonai. Those are just what we call vowel points to the same word, Yahweh. You have been our dwelling place in all what? All right. So we would agree with that, that the people of God have always had a relationship with God as God called them into a relationship with him. And so they are actually announcing their privilege. You have been our dwelling place. So, you know, when I open up in prayer, like I do in the formulaic way that I do, you guys know how I open up. Have you learned it yet? Lord, we're coming to you on the grounds of his shed blood. That's new covenant theology. And we're coming to you on the grounds of his righteousness, right? That's new covenant theology of the union between us and the father through the son, right? Christ in us and we in Christ, right? Uh, that's our position. That's our standing. That's our relationship, meaning that God is with us. That is uh, a new El, a manuel. That's what that means in the Hebrew. God is with us. He's not only with us, he's in us. And not only are we in him, we're with him, too. That means there is a quality of relationship that exists between us and God at the proximal level that allows us to do this. And it's not strange to us. You guys keeping up with me? This is Theology 101. You really never want to lose this. This is fundamental. This is fundamental to defending the gospel. Because the gospel's lost the moment you lose your capacity to fundamentally say just what the scriptures say, because they, they literally say it. Um, the next verse I want you to look at as an argument for the eternality of, of the Son of God, his eternal sonship, is John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. I've been here with you before. I want you to enjoy the aesthetic development. You know what I mean by aesthetic development about what I'm about to say? Raise your hand if you don't know what I mean by the aesthetic development. Good. Aesthetics is the thing that makes you feel good. Aesthetics. We, you and I are made for aesthetics. Did y'all know that? We're made to, when God created the heavens and the earth and put us in a garden, he put us in a place where aesthetic beauty is a mechanism by which we reflect upon the character and nature of God in his love for us. That makes sense, right? So here's what I want you to do with what I'm about to say now. Don't be overly cerebral or intellectually complicated in yourself. Just hear what I'm about to say and enjoy it aesthetically because I'll explain it briefly. Okay, does that make some sense? Right, so now we're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament in terms of genre and, and what we would call syntactical strategy. 
So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Right. And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Right. And, and, and God separated the waters and God said, let there be light. This is Genesis one, two and three. I'm not there. I'm at John chapter one, verse one. I'm just showing you the correlation between the two as I get ready to quote John, because John knows he's talking about Genesis one, one, two and three as he speaks here. Listen to this. In the beginning was the word. Do You guys see that? Is that what that says? Right. In R.K. Halagos. In the beginning was the word. Now, when you understand that construction properly, here's what it says. In the beginning, the word already was. Okay, I just want you to capture that. The word was in the beginning. Now, if that's true, and we already know it's true because the Old Testament told us that he was from everlasting. So that once a beginning occurs, a creation experience, a, a, a ex nihilo, an event of creation occurs, there's something before that event, and John calls it the Logos. The Logos. In the beginning, the Logos was. And the Logos was what? With God. Now we're talking about two individuals having a relationship. Did that make some sense? The Logos and the Word. In this context, John is using code for the Son and the Father. The Son is the Logos and God is the Theos. Did that come home? The Logos is the second person. The Theos is the first person and they are in relationship before anything is created. Did y'all get that? In the beginning was the word. The word already was in the beginning and the word was with the father. So this is a subject object relationship of equals our preposition pros upon means. And the word was face to face with his father, literally. Right. In terms of relationship. Remember, now we're dealing with anthropomorphic language. God doesn't have a face. Jesus in his eternality doesn't have a face, but that's the only way you and I can describe relationship. Relationship at the most intimate level is position one. I taught y'all this in marriage class, face to face. Now, when you got people looking at each other face to face, that means they are comfortable with knowing each other. Haven't I taught y'all that? Position two, side by side. Those are the two donkeys or the two oxen rowing together. Now they're in relationship, but they may not have the intimacy of face to face. Now, no one can say they have the intimacy with God of face to face like Jesus. Now, we will have a proxy kind of face to face with God, but it will never be apart from Christ. It can only be in Christ. So that in Christ, we can see the father through Christ because we see the father in Christ. Does that make sense? Yes. Right. And so because of that relationship, what I'm talking to you about now is not strange to you. It feels good, doesn't it? Because it's relational language. It's relational language. It's meant to be. Listen to it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was what? Right. And, and, and what John did in the construction of this verse was simply say before time, Jesus existed. Jesus existed with his father. Oh, by the way, and they are equal in their deity. Did that make some sense? Right. 
And the reason why John has to tell you and I that the father and the son bear the same nature. This here, this here is a Greek construction that we understand as um, describing the nature of the word. The word was God. We could literally put a parenthesis around it and go God also because the father is God and the son is God. And in terms of them being a plurality of persons, both of them are God, are they not? Right, so here is why John 1-1 does what John 1-1 does. Because there are all kind of people who want to finagle with the nature of God and say that the Father is a bigger God than Jesus. He's a little God. And what's happening in this construction is that what John is saying, no, the Father and the Son are equal in their nature. They're distinct in their person. The Father is the Son and the Son is, is the father is not the son and the son is not the father, but they're equal in nature. So as the father is God, so the son is God in everything that we can describe as God. That makes sense. Y'all got that? This is what we mean by the equality of the father with the son and the equality of the son with the father. That will be my... Um, my Sunday message out of Philippians 2. I just want you to know that. So you will have people say, oh, yeah, I love Jesus, but he's a little God. That is a Jehovah Witness position. That is a Hebraic position. That is a lot of people that want to kind of squeeze in a diminishing of Jesus's nature. And yet what John's saying is at the beginning of our conversation, let me help you understand the father and the son bear the same ontological qualitative uh, uh, qualities at the level of nature. And that makes sense. That makes sense. The children you have bear equal quality of essence with you, even though they're different from you. Does that make sense? Right. So a son is always equal to his daddy ontologically in essence and in nature. They are subordinate in role, but equal in relationship. Mama, you have daughters. They are equal to you in essence. Mama, you have daughters. They are equal to you in essence. They are not less than you in essence. If you lessen their essence, you lessen your essence. Did that make some sense? Right. Very important. This is the beauty of the offspring. I don't have time to fully develop it, but this is really what's going on here in the expression of Micah chapter five. His goings forth, the matzah yatza, his goings forth are from of old mega dim, even me olam from eternity. His matzah yatza, his going forth, his issuing forth, his coming up out of into expression. That's the way the language is used. And the beauty of it is this. While I have you. Go back to Micah 5 too, because I want to nail down into this. The beauty of this is this. I love this. Um, God made you in his image. Didn't he? All right. So if you spend enough careful time looking at yourself you will find a significant analogy between you and God for God to make sense to you at the analogous level. Y'all ready? Right. So there was a time when you didn't exist. You agree with that? Which means you're not God. But there was a time when you did exist. But when you came into existence, you were not seen. That makes you like God. 
in that in the seed of your conception, in the womb of your mother, you are just as invisible to any other human being as God is invisible to any other human being. Raise your hand if you got that. You get to run around the church and shout, hallelujah. He created us in the image of God. It's important for you to get it. It's important for you to get it. So what he does is when he creates it, and you know, you can't see the, 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 the sperm and the ovum once they connect and life is engendered there. That's microscopic at the smallest levels. Without a microscope, it's just a mystery. As Solomon said, the way of the bones in the womb of a woman with child is a mystery. Why? Because God said in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image and in our likeness so that when they come into existence at the point of life, they are still a mystery of invisibility. Until they develop and mature, which is what the term matsuyatsa means, begin to usher forth, issue forth, issue forth, spring forth, come forth. It's all a mystery. And the birth of a child is that grand manifestation of a person coming into uh, space who already existed for several months before in the womb of its mother. Y'all keeping up with me? So follow this. The thin veil of being in the belly versus being out of the belly is a metaphor of Jesus existing before time, before coming into time. Raise your hand if you got it. And I'm doing this on purpose. Like when, when the child born, child, when a man child is born or a girl child is born, we're super happy at their birth, are we not? But we know they already existed before they came forth. We were already preparing for them. We were already cheering for them. We were already praying for them. We were already talking to them, even though we had no visible manifestation of them, right? So it is not hard for us to say that Jesus existed before time and then ushered into time, space, continuum, as you and I have it, for the purpose of revealing who God is to us and in us, okay? So I, I, wanna, uh, I wanna drill down into this in a few more verses under subpoint A. Um, John chapter one, verse one, go to John chapter one, verse two. Um, I, I may wanna deal with that, yeah. So the same was in the what? With who? Right, so John nails it down. Wherever God was, Jesus was. Y'all got that? Jesus was in the beginning with God. Wherever God was, that's where Jesus was. Where was God? In eternity past. Where was Jesus? With his God. This is an eternal sonship. That's what I mean. Eternal sonship. If the father is from everlasting, then the son has to be from everlasting. You got that, right? You can't have a temporal son and an eternal father. Remember, I teach you how to be logical at grace. Like, see, you're, did that come home? Like, you can't have a temporal son and an eternal father because the father can only be eternal as long as the son is eternal. Because once the son is not eternal, then the father's not eternal. Because the father is only a father when he has a son. So if the son is temporal, then the father's temporal. But if the son is eternal, then the what? Father's eternal too. 
So if we say our God is the eternal God, then his son has to be the eternal son because God is father from eternity. That makes sense. All right, just drilling that home for you. And here's what Jesus does in uh, building an argument for his eternality. This is John's gospel, chapter 8, verse 51 through 59. And it's largely verse 58 that I want to get to and show you how Jesus has the right to actually confound uh, grammar syntax in relationship to his character. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keeps my sayings, he shall never see what? That's just crazy. The only person can talk like that is God. Verse 52. Let's keep going. Then said the Jews unto him, now we know that you have a devil. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if a man keep your sins, he shall never taste of death. You know what they did? They tried to play the leverage of higher, greater to the lesser against Jesus. How can you telling somebody if they trust you, they'll never see death when Abraham's greater than you and Abraham's dead. And you know what Jesus said right there? That's my point. That'll come home in a minute. That's my point. I want you to understand I'm greater than Abraham. Y'all get that? Look at the next verse. Verse three. And you are greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets, which are dead. Who do you make yourself to be? <laughs> Y'all getting the logic here? Let's go to the next verse. Notice what he says. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my what? I told you he came to honor who? The father. And notice what he says. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my father that honors me of whom you say that he is your God. That's another quagmire. Because like if you know God, then you should know me. Next verse. You, you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. I love his theology, right? It's, it's pretty PJ-ish, isn't it? But I know him and I keep his sayings. I know him because remember what John said in John 1, 1? It's a mano a mano. It's a face to face. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Prosopon, face to face with God. That means he knew God. That's what Jesus said. I've been knowing him forever. Yeah, I know him. You don't know him, but I know him. Right? An amazing argument, isn't it? He's arguing on the grounds of a relationship that is, that is uh, what is called incontrovertible. Jesus knew him before time and Jesus is knowing him in time, isn't he? Yeah. No, notice what he says. I shall be a liar. I want to finish that last clause just in case I, I messed up. And I should be a liar like unto you, but I know him and I do what? Keep his sayings. And this is so extremely important because if we pass the baton from the father to the son, that we know that Jesus knew the father because Jesus keep the father saying. In other words, he acts like the father. Like father, like what? And if we pass that bond, but, uh, baton to us and we say we know Christ, we should keep his sayings. Isn't that what Jesus is going to teach in, in four and seven chapters? In chapter 15, 16, uh, 14, 15 and 16, he's going to tell the Christian, if you keep my sayings, then my father will love you even as I keep his sayings and he loves me. That is the correlative relationship. If I'm a Christian, then the Creo is in me. And I'm in the Creo. And there's a relationship, mano a mano, face to face between me and the Creo, right? 
and I'm getting to know the Creole because the Creole already, already knows me. And if I know the Creole with the relative knowledge of intimacy, wouldn't I be talking about the Creole? Because the knowing is a loving, right? When you know someone and you love someone, you are easily capable of talking about that someone that you love. All right, so watch this. We're headed there. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Boy, he's just beating them all upside the head. Like, he has destroyed their categories here. He's not doing it in a pejorative way. He's actually drilling down into realities that he knows, and you and I are going to get a chance to enjoy this. This is another one of those verses that affirm Psalm 40, verse 7. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. So in other words, Jesus came in the Genesis account. He came in Exodus. He came in Leviticus. He came in Numbers. He came in Deuteronomy. He came in Genesis. He came to Abraham. Did he come to Abraham? Did Jesus come to Abraham? That's how Abraham knew him. So like Jesus already announced his, his coming. Didn't we say that? So what you and I will get to do on Friday is see how he comes in Genesis, how he comes in Exodus, how he comes in Leviticus, how he comes in Numbers. That means all of the people who knew God knew Jesus. Now, we know Abraham knew Jesus, don't we? All right. And we'll get a chance to see that. It's all in your outline. But notice what he says. He saw my day and was glad. What day was he talking about? Just as a little parenthetical, it was the resurrection motif of Isaac on Mount Moriah. Remember, Abraham had to offer up his son. So now Abraham is occupying the position of the father. As the father is offering up his son, now Abraham gets to feel the dagger in his heart that he now is being obligated to love something, to, to give something up that he loves really bad for someone else. And that's why the father took him through that test on Mount Moriah. But he did it, didn't he? He lifted that dagger to thrust his son through, didn't he? And the Holy Ghost stopped him. The angel stopped him, said, good, I'm glad. I just wanted everybody to see that you love me. And now what Abraham and Isaac becomes is a pattern of the father and the son, do they not? And when Abraham turned and saw that ram in the thicket and said, "Woo, a substitute for sinners. That's the joy that you and I have when we look to Christ. The ram dies in our place. And we don't die as we should. That's what Abraham was rejoicing. Abraham loved him some Isaac. But he was going to love God more. And God showed him that all I wanted you to do is be a pattern of that. And this is where you and I are too. If any man loved me, he'll, he'll lay down his life for me, right? That's agape. Let me, let me finish this. Notice what it says in verse 7, uh, 80, uh, 57. Then said the Jews unto him, you are not yet 50 years old. And <laughs> you've seen Abraham? The eternal son, the eternal son. Right. See, those theologians couldn't hold that category together. All they saw was a man born, raised in Nazareth, the son of Mary, stepson of Joseph. They do not get his eternality, do they? They never did. And even to today, they largely don't. Am I making sense? Now, listen to what he says. We're going to close here. Look at verse um, 58. Here's what he said. Jesus said unto them, truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham had an existence, I was. Do you see it? Before Abraham was brought into existence, here I am. 
So God, Christ is saying, I precede Abraham. Now, again, if we lifted this verse up out of his text and, and allow it to be tortured by people who are um, largely anti-eternal son of God, uh, ben, they might argue that Jesus is not saying that he's before time. He's just saying that he's before Abraham. Did y'all get that? Yeah, you get to laugh on that one. You, you get to laugh because the logic is absurd. Did that follow? They're like, now hold on, hold on. The text just simply says you were before Abraham. Now I accept that, but you can't, you can't be before time. And Jesus would go, okay, this is, this is AD 33. Abraham was 2000 years ago. What? Am I 2033 years old? What? Y'all following me? I'm helping you with the principles of logic. Because what Christ is doing is inferring, not, not explicitly saying that he's before time. But what he's saying is everybody else has died. Everybody else has died. All the patriarchs. And Abraham is number one on the Abrahamic promises. So if Abraham is dead and yet Jesus is alive, then Jesus has to be more than a human species. Y'all see what I'm getting at? Well, it's important for you and I to remember that. So let me close with uh, just a look at all four of our points, and we'll pick this up uh, on Friday and drill, drill down deeper. Point number one, Jesus is before time. Point number two, he announced his coming. Point number three, he reveals himself in personal mediation. I'm looking forward to unpacking that. And then finally, he revealed himself as the royal what? Seed. It all terminates in terms of his incarnation at Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where David is. David received the covenant from God that your son shall sit on the throne forever and rule everything. Does that make some sense? All right, so we're going to come back and, and, and anchor that down. Ladies and gentlemen, this here is theology proper at the level of Christology going all the way back to Christ and the apostles. To not get this right is to endanger yourself of not knowing the gospel. Do you understand that? It's important to get these things right. All right.